Revelation chapter 21, last book of the Bible. This morning we're going to study verses 1 through 8. Let me read Revelation 21, 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything New. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, at long last, we've come to Revelation chapter 21. I'm so excited to finally be here. And, and not just, not because we're finishing Revelation. I've enjoyed preaching through Revelation, but I'm excited we're in Revelation 21 because 21 and 22 I think are my favorite parts of the book. Some people get all fired up about, you know, arguing about the tribulation and the millennium and this beast and the Antichrist and, and that is really interesting and obviously we've, I've preached on that and, and taught on that, but you know, the thing that really gets my juices going when I think of Revelation is chapter 21 and 22. Because it's a description of our true home as believers. Uh, you know, before you, you become a Christian, you think this world is your home, right? And this world is all there is. This is it. And so life is about getting all that you can out of this world, having every kind of experience, living life to the fullest, making as much money as you can. You know, it's all about the relationships and the things you possess and the vacations and, and sort of just sucking the marrow out of this world and holding on to it as tightly as possible because we think this world is it. This is my home. And we don't think about the world to come. I mean, we sort of avoid that topic. Uh, when we go to funerals, we try not to get carried away thinking about where that person might be or where I might be when it's the day for my funeral. We don't think about that. And so, so at funerals, before we know the Lord, we, we sort of turn our back on all that and we, we prefer just to sort of remember their life. Let's remember the past. 
the things that have been rather than thinking about what could be next. And so the most we come away with thinking about mortality is, hey, life is short, carpe diem, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, but then you become a follower of Jesus. And that, that shift takes place. You know, when you become a Christian, there's this sort of dramatic shift that takes place in your perspective about life. You know, becoming a Christian isn't like just putting a new application on your computer. It's like changing your whole operating system. You know, it's like going from PC to Mac, or you know, Mac to PC, depending on where you stand on that whole eternal debate. But, but whatever, it's, it's as if your whole operating system shifts and you suddenly see life differently. And things that used to really appeal to you are now kind of repugnant and, and gross to you. And things that you used to, used to think were, were indifferent or you didn't care about, or why would anyone care about that? Why would anyone go to church? Why would anyone read the Bible? There's too much to do in this life. Suddenly those things are very interesting. And so your whole you know, view of reality shifts, and you also get this shift in what you view as your home. And all of a sudden, this world isn't quite home, which is a rather strange experience as a Christian, to live in the world, to be a part of the world, and yet to feel, all of a sudden, I don't belong where I used to belong. You know, even the the towniest New England townie, <laughs> when they become a Christian, it changes. You know, it's like I grew up in Braintree my whole life. And the house I live in in Braintree is actually right around the corner from the house I was born in in Braintree. And, but all of a sudden, I'm a follower of Christ and I, I don't quite belong here. Even though I totally belong here. And yet, this isn't my home. And you, and you have this strange little, you know, voice in the back of, of your mind that tells you that the place you belong isn't a place you've ever been to yet. Which is a very strange experience. I belong somewhere that I haven't been and I will go to someday, but I've never been in my home yet. It's very strange. And so I love Revelation 21 because it's one of those places where we get a glimpse of home. The place I've never been that is the exact place I'm made for. And it's it's here in Revelation 21 that we have a uh, this little glimpse into the future. I, I love this section. So what I want to do this morning, these eight verses, is just kind of take you on a virtual home tour. Let's sort of project into the future, past the day of judgment, past the great resurrection, to the final day when God settles us into our eternal home. And here's a glimpse of it in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. And so I'd, I'd like to reflect on this text. And, and uh, let me just make three sort of big picture observations about our eternal home here in Revelation chapter 21. Three characteristics of this home. And and hopefully it will kindle desire in our hearts to let go of this world and to overcome and to press on toward our home in Christ. So let me uh, point out three things that are characteristics of this home here in Revelation 21. The first is this. It's new. This isn't one of those rehabbed old New England antique houses that you're always fixing up and everything's falling apart. This is new construction. Brand new. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the 
new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And as if we didn't get the point, again in verse 5, He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. It's a new creation. So in Genesis, or rather in Revelation 21.1, you have a sort of repeat of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis starts off in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so Revelation 21 is, is like a new book of Genesis starting, where we just see the first chapter and then we don't get to see the rest because that's yet to come. I will make a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a new creation. That's our home. You know, sometimes Christians, uh, I think, mistakenly think of the place we go when, we're, when we die as our home. And it is and it isn't. You know, when, when we die as believers, our, our bodies go into the grave and they're in the Christ's care in the grave, and our souls are in Christ's care in His presence. And in a very real sense, we're with the Lord. You know, it says in uh, Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, so there's no such thing as soul sleep. We don't sleep when we die. We're, we're actually with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And yet, that state of being separated from our bodies is not the way God intended it to be. The Apostle Paul says, he, he describes being out of the body as being naked and how we desire to be clothed. And as long as we're separated from our bodies, death still has won. So our true home isn't there. It's for that future day when, when we'll be raised to a new body and we'll come back together, whatever that looks like or means, and we'll be raised to a new creation and we'll have to enter into a new heavens and earth, a whole new universe. Because the old creation that we know will be gone. Again, it says in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth, the one God made in the book of Genesis, the one you and I are standing in at this very moment, or seated in, is going away. We saw that last Sunday. If you were here for the uh, study of the white throne judgment, look at chapter 20, verse 11, if you go back. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from His presence, and there was no place for them. So earth and sky, or you could translate that earth and heaven. You know, the old one, the first one is gone. And now God is making a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. You know, it just makes your mind wonder, like, what's it going to be like? What, what's going to happen in the new creation? I don't know. <laughs> no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love Him. I don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, that's, that's part of the whole excitement, right? It's new. It's new. It's a new thing. And, and I can't wait to discover what it'll be. But I think I can say from the text here, one thing that won't be there, verse uh, 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea is gone. Now, all the uh, sailors here and fishermen and scuba divers and surfers, you all just kind of threw up in your mouths a little bit, didn't you? You just, uh, you're like, what? No ocean? I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go there. There's no sea. Well, that could mean there's literally no water if there is such thing as water in the new creation. Who knows what God will do? But I don't think that's the point of the text here. I, you know, the sea is used, the word sea is used in different ways. Sometimes it's used to talk about a literal ocean. Other times it's used to describe, especially in the book of Revelation, 
as a, a figure of speech for the powers of evil and chaos and opposition to God in this world. You know, think about, again, Nantasket Beach during a nor'easter. Just think about the sea roaring and foaming. And so in the Old Testament, uh, you have these different uh, images where the, the sort of the rebellion of the world against God is portrayed as a, a roaring sea splashing and foaming and splashing up at God and roaring at Him uh, in rebellion against Him. And so in Revelation, that theme from the Old Testament is picked up and is repeated. So for instance, Revelation chapter 13, the beast, where does he come from? He comes out of the sea. I don't necessarily think that means that, you know, one day Godzilla is going to actually, you know, pop up out of the water and, you know, like he does in all the old Godzilla movies. I, I think it means the sea is a common Old Testament symbol for the nations in the world in their rebellion against God. Uh, or Revelation chapter 17, the great prostitute sits on many waters. And then and it goes on to say that the many waters represent peoples and nations and languages, all the world and its hostility toward its creator. Or even here, close to our own passage, look at back at chapter 20, verse 13. It says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. So the sea is partnered very closely as a, a container for the, the dead along with death and Hades. And of course, in verse 14, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, and then in chapter 21, verse 1, the sea is thrown away. So, so I think it's the sea in the, in, and it's associated in the sense of a, an abyss, a deep place where the dead go, where death resides, where darkness and sort of evil reside. And I think finally the, the ultimate proof is right here in chapter 21. You know, it says again, the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. Hear that language? And there was no longer any sea. Now go down to verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's the, the same construction in Greek as there is no longer any sea. Now there's no longer any death. And why, verse 4? The old order of things has passed away. The exact same verb as back in verse 1, where heaven and earth pass away. So when it says that there's no sea, I think what it's saying is, in the new creation there's no Sin. And there's nothing that goes along with sin. Like death, sorrow, mourning. Then in the new heavens and the earth, new earth, there's no, there's no breaking up, there's no abuse, there's no divorce, there's no grief, there's no cancer, there's no poverty, there's no war. Everything that comes out of sin is gone. There's, there's not a drop of sin left. The ocean is dry. That ocean, the sea is gone. Boy, that alone right there makes me want to go there. I'll tell you. Could you imagine life as a follower of Jesus without sin? I, mean, I don't care what it looks like. I just want to go. I don't care if the new creation is made out of concrete. Get me where there's no sin. That's where I want to live. I want to be free where there's no longer any sea. And then, of course, verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So here's the new city of God, the, the perfect city. This is not a city that you and I can build on this earth. This is not a city that you and I can create through social 
improvement or betterment, even though Christians should be about those things. But do not think that our social engagement and our working in the culture is going to create a utopia. All utopian visions are flawed because all utopians' visions are made by human beings and human beings are the problem. So the only way there's ever going to be a new utopia is if it comes down from heaven, not something that we cobble together with our best efforts. And what is the new Jerusalem? What, what is it? I mean, it's a city, but I think what it's talking about is it's us. It's the church. All of God's people, Old and New Testament together, who are faithful saints. Because look what it says. It says it calls it the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, there's this wedding imagery that was used back in chapter 19 to talk about the church as, as Christ's bride in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so here comes God's people finally perfected. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, you guys remember way back in chapters 2 and 3? It's the seven letters to the seven churches. And man, those churches are messed up. They're suffering. People are being killed for their faith. There's dying. There's tears. There's temptation. The churches, in some cases, are giving into the temptation. They're buying into the false teachers. They're giving into the cultural pressures. And so Jesus warns these seven churches. And in many ways, those seven churches are a representation of all churches. That we all go through these challenges and temptations and trials. So there's the church in tribulation. There's the church in temptation. And now at the end of Revelation, here comes the church. But it's not seven churches. It's one. And it's a bride beautifully prepared for her husband, finally perfected in glory. And so Revelation begins and ends with the vision of God's people, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it's all new. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And this is our home. You know? This whole thing about a new creation made me think of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. It's the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And the last battle is the... Uh, it, basically, it's the story of the second coming through the, the whole Narnia uh, grid. And, and at the end of the book, you know, there's the final judgment day and the destruction of the old Narnia. And all of the characters come into the new Narnia. You know, sort of like the new creation. And they're trying to figure out what it is. You know, they're, they're just so... They're like, I've... I belong here, but I've never been here. And it seems like the old Narnia, but it's even better. And they're trying to make sense of this experience of being in the new creation. And then I love it. Finally, the unicorn speaks up. Because you know all the animals talk in, in Narnia. And it says, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed. And then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Bree! It says Bree he he. I'm trying to. <laughs> trying my best with unicorn. Bree! Come further up! Come further in. And if you know the story, then they take off at a, a gallop, all of them. Further up, further in, further up, further in. This is my true home. Our true home is a place that has not been made yet. And we have not been yet. 
Although, let me just qualify that slightly. That's not 100% accurate. Because what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's not coincidental language. The old is gone, the new has come. That, that's Old Testament, Isaiah 65, new creation language. In other words, what Paul is saying is that, that when we come to faith in Jesus, it's not just us deciding, well, I'm going to start going to church now. It, it is a new creation. You're actually born again. You, you, are, you once were dead, now you're alive. You're created anew. So in a sense, I, I think what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians is that the new creation begins in a sort of inaugurated, sort of germinal way in our souls when the Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ. It's as if, it's as if in our salvation, a little pebble is taken from the shore of the new creation. See, I think there's a sea there, I guess. <laughs> you know, a, a, a good ocean. You know, a, a little pebble is taken from the new creation and it's placed within our hearts. And so in this life, we have this, the, the new creation is in us. We're part of the new creation. And that's what's making us sense that we belong there because it's already begun in a little tiny seed form within our souls. And, and that's why, as a Christian, even when I get lost and I turn away from God for a season and I try to plunge back into that raging ocean of unbelief and hostility to God, and I try to swim my way down in a season of unbelief and disobedience, I can't ever get to the bottom. It's like trying to swim to the bottom with a huge life jacket on. Have you ever tried to swim down with a life jacket? You just keep popping back up. And, and that little seed of, of the new creation is like a life jacket. It just keeps popping me up and dragging me toward, toward eternal life with Christ. And so it's God who saved me, it's God who sent His Son. It's God who predestined me. It's God who changed my heart and gave me faith so that I could believe. And it's God who just keeps grabbing me and pulling me toward His new creation despite all my efforts to swim away sometimes. And God is the one at work in us to drag us to heaven. And the new creation has already begun within us and so it feels like home. So what is this home? Number one, it's new. Just moving on quickly here. Number two, here's the second great thing about this home. It's occupied. Number two, it is occupied. There is somebody there besides us. Verse three, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. We're going to dwell with God. I love that, that Greek word for dwell. I'm on kind of a Greek kick this morning, but that, that, Greek, that word for dwell is the Greek word for tent. And, and it's a reference. It, that word is, is the word that's used to describe the tent, you know, the tabernacle in Israel. That Remember, God dwelt among the Israelites in the Old Testament. He built a tent. He tented with them. God camped with Israel. And so there's this idea that God is going to tent with us again. Except unlike Israel, where the Israelites lived near the tent, but they couldn't actually go in the tent because they weren't the priests. Only the priests could go in the tent. And only certain priests could go in the actual tent. And only the high priest could go in the tent inside the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so there were, there were all these boundaries and borders. But there's coming a day 
in this new creation where we will go all the way into the Holy of Holies and we'll dwell in the tent with God. It'll be like when Moses went inside the tent of meeting. I love that in Exodus. He talked to the Lord as a man talks with his friend face to face. And we'll finally see the Lord face to face. We will see God in every way that a human being glorified in Christ can see God and dwell with Him and talk with Him. That's what makes heaven heaven is that God will be there. God will, will tent with us and will tent with Him in His tent. And He'll be our God. You know, what makes a home home? Why is your home your home? It's, isn't it the people who are there? Isn't that what makes a place, isn't that what makes an area home? You know, sometimes I, uh, every once in a while, I don't go that often, I go back home to uh, my hometown, Las Vegas, and see my family, see my parents. And I like to uh, drive to the little house I grew up in. You know, you always got to drive by the house you grew up in. 708 Avenue A, I drive by it, and it always looks way smaller than I remembered as a kid. And, you know, you, you drive by and all these memories come back. You're like, oh, I forgot. That's the window I used to sneak out of, you know. And, and you're like, and, oh, there's, there's the carport my dad built. Wow, that carport's still up. You know, they changed the paint. And all I remember, we used to play kick the can, and I would hide, you know, right there in, those, in that you know, bush over there. You know, whatever. You just All these memories come back. But I wouldn't say that that place is my home. You know, it, it, it's... It's nostalgic, but it's not home. I couldn't walk in the door and say, I'm home! You know? Besides the fact that I'd be breaking and entering, it, would, uh, it wouldn't feel like home to me. I wouldn't feel that I was home. You know, My home is in Norwell, because that's where my wife and my children are. My home is right here, right now, in this room, because you're my family, and the family of Christ. If this building, God forbid, burned down, and we had to all meet at the Ramada for a year, I would be home as long as you were there and we were there together as the family of God. This is home. So home is, is the people uh, who are there. That's what makes it home. You know, some of you have gone through the empty nest thing and the kids leave the house and it kind of feels empty. It doesn't feel so much like home because the family isn't there. And when then you have a big reunion and everyone comes and all the kids and grandkids are together, it's like, it's home again, you know, in some sense. That's what makes home home. Some of you have lost a spouse and, and you know what it's like to be in the same house, sleeping in the same bed, but your spouse is gone and it's like it's not home, even though you have all this house with all these memories, but it's not home anymore because the person isn't there. And so heaven is the place where we are forever home because God is there. You know? If, if you were to go to the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no more sin, no more dying, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. But Jesus wasn't there. Would it be home? Would you not say, where is Christ? This is a great place. This new creation is amazing. But I can't wait to go home. I want to go home. Where's Christ? That's where home is. It's where it says in verse 7, He who overcomes will inherit all this. So we've got to overcome. That's what the main application of this passage is. Keep striving and overcoming in our faith because we want to 
get there. We want to show ourselves to be true followers of Christ. He who overcomes will inherit all this. You'll get all of this. And I will be his God and he will be my people. You'll inherit all of it. Normally we inherit things when our loved ones die. In in the new creation we will inherit it all when we come to life. And we'll have it forever with God. We don't have to have God go away for us to get the inheritance. It's when we come to Him that we get the inheritance. It's all backwards in a wonderful way. The way it should be. And we'll finally have Him and He will be our God and we will be His sons and His daughters. And when we walk into the new Jerusalem, we throw the gates open. It's going to be like when my kids get home from school. You know, they throw the door open. They never shut it. And... uh, they just fling all their junk on the ground and they yell, I'm home! <laughs> hey, you're home! And you are going to open up the new Jerusalem doors and all the saints will go marching in and we'll yell, Father, we're home! We're home! And the, and the echo will come back, Well done, good and faithful servants. Come home! Our, our true home is new. Our true home is occupied with the very one who makes it home, which is God Himself. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Eternal life is to know God and to be in fellowship with Him. And then, just very quickly here, the third characteristic of home, and this is kind of a funny one, is that it's simultaneously exclusive and inclusive that it's simultaneously very closed and very open look at the closed part go down to verse 8 we read this verse last sunday tough verse but let's face it square on verse 8 the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts the idolaters and all liars their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death that's the exclusive side this cat these categories of people cannot go into the new creation and i noticed two things about that list in verse eight. First of all is it's pretty comprehensive and i think it applies to everybody i mean at one point or many other points i have categor- i have through my actions categorized myself as one of these people that all of us are these people and so if you just look at verse eight based on what we know of human behavior, nobody makes the grade. Nobody gets there. Nobody is worthy. Because we've all done these things. We've all been a part of these things. And notice the second thing about this list is where those people end up. They're not in the new creation, so where are they? Their place is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So whereas the new creation is the place of eternal life, The lake of fire is the place of eternal experience of death. Whereas the new creation is the place where God wipes every tear from our eyes, the lake of fire is the place where our vision is forever blurred with our tears. Whereas the new creation is the place where there is no more pain or sorrow, the lake of fire is the place where our very DNA is saturated with sorrow and misery. Whereas the new creation is the place where God is our Father, in the lake of fire, God is our dread enemy and our judge. It's just everything the new creation is, is what 
the lake of fire isn't. And everything the lake of fire is is what the new creation isn't. So it's very exclusive and it's a very bleak picture. But then, look at verse 6. It's also very inclusive. It's also very wide open. It's a really interesting contrast. Look at verse 6. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost, totally free, without cost, from the spring of the water of life. And not only is that a future promise, it's a present offering. I mean, look at, turn over to chapter 22, verse 17. It is also a present invitation. Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let him who hears say, Come! Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes. So on the one hand, it looks like nobody gets in. But then in this verse, it's like, well, you know, whoever wants to, just come. Come and let him take the, what? Free gift of the water of life. Salvation and heaven and the new creation is a free gift. And so you have these two strange verses that don't seem like they should be able to live in the same sentence. Everyone's excluded because we're all sinners and yet come and and be free. So how can this be? How do these go together? Of course we know the reason is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's because of what Jesus did that the excluded can now be included through the free gift of salvation. Because the reality is, it's not free, it's just that it's paid for. And therefore it's free. It wasn't free. Jesus Christ gave a great price to purchase this free gift for us. He who is the Son of Heaven, who is the Son of Righteousness, came down to this earth to share with us in our curse and our our suffering and our sin. Uh, he who, whose ears always hear eternal hallelujahs and praises came down to hear curses against Him. He who lives in the place of no tears and no crying wept with us in our sin and our death. He who has never known suffering or pain or sorrow came down and embraced the pain and the misery on the cross that we deserve for our sins. The One who is the Son of God, who is in closest communion with the Father and the Spirit, took our sins on the cross and He took up the lament that the damned cry out in hell, which is, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me forever? And He took that up on the cross. And so it's because Christ took our sins, because Christ paid the penalty and rose again for His elect, that we have this freedom to come. It's a free gift because it's already been paid for. And so come to Christ. All you need to come to Christ, all you need to make your home in heaven is to bring your empty hands and to say, Lord, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Come and take the free gift. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, 
the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your heart is open and Your arms are open through Christ to any prodigal who will return to You. And Lord, we thank You that no matter how prodigal we've been, no matter how disgracefully we have wasted our inheritance, that Lord, if we just come back to You and, and say, I've sinned against heaven and against You, that there is grace purchased through Christ's death. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know You, Jesus, that we would we would continue to savor our future home and always recognize that it is a free gift purchased through Christ. And Lord, we pray that, that You would make that our home in our hearts, that we would long for heaven, that we would not be satisfied with this world or the things of this world, that, Lord, You would wean our, our hopeless addiction to this world. And God, make our hope in heaven stronger and stronger within our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 